0: So Mike, I've got a story for you today.
1: All right, let me let me guess. Have you gone deep into some Web3 rabbit hole or are we get to talk about the emerging L1 and L2 chains? No, actually none of those. Okay, well, if not Web3, maybe dark web stuff? The history of Tor?
0: No, no, nothing like that. In a way, it's actually much bigger than anything that you've mentioned.
1: All right, bigger. I'm gonna keep the guessing game going. Maybe about something on the russian disinformation farms where people go to work every day just to troll social media and you know so distrust around the world it would kind of be a continuation of our last season
0: (laughs) okay all right all right that would actually be a good one i'm gonna gonna write that one down but no today
1: we're gonna talk about wind turbines and offshore wind oh okay i'm I mean, I guess that is technology and it is a product, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and a new potential energy source for a better future. So today we're gonna talk with Annie Ropik, environmental reporter working for NPR about her fascinating work researching offshore winds from the tech to the politics. There's honestly a lot to take
1: away. All right, all right, well, I'm into it. Let's roll the intro. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Racket Ship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play. Rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, hackerone.com slash AI.
0: This episode is sponsored by porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies, too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year and more five star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort So the United States is poised for the birth of a brand new industry, one that will invest tens of billions of dollars into the economy, reshape the coastal communities, and one that could be one of the best tools in the fight against climate change,
1: and that's offshore wind. All right, offshore wind. But first, maybe we should try to dig into what the heck offshore wind even is. All right, well, here's
0: Annie Ropik to explain.
2: So offshore wind would be big turbines that are uh, planted out at sea in the ocean. So typically in federal waters, so several miles offshore, and the wind spins the turbines and that powers, um, you know, a little generator that, that generates electricity and is transported back to the grid. So the same way that you would have a turbine in like a coal-fired power plant, you know, that the burning of the coal is generating steam that turns the turbine this is just the wind blows into the turbine and that's how the electricity is generated and it's seen as really one of the sort of biggest bangs for our buck uh, as a climate solution because especially on the east coast but also in other parts of the world um, including already in europe in the past decade there's been a lot of offshore wind development it's just a big resource there is a lot of available wind and ocean uh, to to generate this power. And and it's, you know, of course, zero carbon power. There are environmental impacts of of building and siting the projects, but it's seen as a a really important uh, option to help us decarbonize and fight climate change.
1: Decarbonize and fight climate change. I like the sound of that. Yeah, it's a massive
0: opportunity for us to invest in the new energy source. And a lot of work has already begun,
1: especially in Europe. I'm really glad to hear about the investments, but Why are we 10 years behind Europe? Now, that's an interesting story.
2: Yeah, so the current state is uh, that it's pretty mature in Europe. um, And that began around 2010 that we sort of saw the hockey stick of the growth chart really increase. There are... You know, 30, 35 gigawatts of wind, which um, a megawatt, uh, so that's a thousand megawatts. A megawatt is enough to power like six or 700 homes for a year, just to give you some sense of the scale here. And, you know, a typical nuclear power plant might be maybe one gigawatt. So it's it's a lot, you know, and that's just in a matter of years, a sort of limited number of projects, thousands of turbines, but mature in Europe, but still growing and then just starting to take off in the US, um, especially on the East Coast. Uh, we have seven turbines in the ocean right now. They're all in state waters and they're mostly sort of demonstration scale projects. But the Biden administration wants to permit by 2030 as, about as much wind as Europe has installed now for just the US, mostly on the East Coast, but he's also looking at opening up the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific Coast. Um, to this development. And so we are currently in the very early stages of construction for the very first sort of utility scale federal waters project, which is going to be vineyard wind uh, between Massachusetts and Rhode Island.
1: This reminds me a bit of the quantum computing conundrum that we're currently in while we're on the cusp of a breakthrough. But you know, we're missing the raw materials that we really need to build at scale.
0: Now, there was one project that was attempted in the U.S., which was attempted right around the same time as the big European advancements, and that is called the Cape Wind Project.
2: Really, we had one project that was attempted in the U.S. around the time that the European industry was also growing, which was the Cape Wind Project, right south of Massachusetts in Nantucket Sound, which was a just famous boondoggle. I mean, it it took like about 16 years to fail for a variety of reasons. But the biggest one was that we didn't have regulations for how to site a wind turbine in the 2000s and 2010s. You know, the country had never done this before, and this project was proposed before those were set up, which wound up creating a lot more problems than it ultimately solved. That process did sort of lead to the process we have now, which has still been full of pitfalls for the kind of current projects. But the political chaos around Cape Wind, you know, it was like hated and loved in bipartisan measures. The Kennedys were involved, the Cokes were involved. It was a whole thing, which we talk about in episode two of our podcast. And, and that, you know, that set the industry back
1: a 16 years to fail maybe maybe we're in the wrong industry michael right
0: here's a clip from gbh news discussing the cape wind project in 2014
3: hello welcome to greater boston on tv and streaming online and on mobile i'm emily rooney when it was first proposed 13 years ago that cape wind project was a revolutionary idea that promised to jumpstart the green economy in massachusetts but then a slew of lawsuits took some of the wind out of its sails now though, the developers of the wind farm off Nantucket say they are finally poised to break ground. We here at WGBH have been covering that Cape Wind project since it was a twinkle in developers' eyes. Here we are in 2003. The proposed wind farm has been at the center of a Nantucket sound off for years. The controversy ranged from potential damage to natural habitats to the aesthetic. But developers say the trade offs are worth it, as the planned 130 turbines on the shoals of Nantucket Sound will provide three quarters of the Cape's energy needs.
0: More from Annie Ropique and the story of the Cape Wind Project after the break. Dot com. That's business.att.com.
1: All right, so let's talk more about this Cape Wind project. Annie mentioned that there was a lot of opposition. Yeah tons. Here's a Greenpeace advertisement from 2007. Senator Kennedy! Gas is $3 a gallon. Terrible. And global warming's melting the glaciers. A real shame. The Middle East is a complete mess. Even the president is saying we're addicted to oil. Yeah, what's your point? So why are you trying to stop America's first offshore wind project, Cape Wind?
0: And a familiar voice, Mitt Romney, speaking out against the Cape Wind project
1: in 2008. This is not a decision about money. It's not even a decision about power. It is a decision about our environment, about the legacy we leave our children. It is a heritage given to us by God. We may not, we cannot trash this extraordinary resource that the Cape enjoys. Thank you. There was a group known as the Alliance that was formed back in part by Robert Kennedy Jr., now known today for his anti-vax rhetoric, uh, and Bill Koch. They had an economic interest in maintaining the status quo in terms of energy sources. And this alliance
0: was successful in gunking up the works for the project. At one point, they had 26 lawsuits running through various courts.
1: And eventually, Jim Gordon, the developer pioneering the project after 16 years, gave up. But this did pave the way for new projects, especially as Europe was able to make incredible progress in
0: that same time.
1: And if I understand currently, there's a new project being pushed through in, is it New Hampshire? That's right. Here's Annie again.
2: The biggest caveat about that question is that we're probably about 10 years off from seeing any, what they call, steel in the water in the Gulf of Maine, which includes New Hampshire, some northern New England. But it is seen as having a really good resource, and Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, which kind of has a foot in you know southern and northern New England waters, um, are, are really interested in, in making this happen. But it's just a very long regulatory process, and we're only at the very beginning of it. But if and when that happens it is seen as having huge economic potential and not just from the the energy that would be generated and sort of the value of that kind of like cheap clean energy coming onto the grid and and replacing fossil fuels that are more expensive but even more so in the kind of the supply chain so all of the things that need to be manufactured and will eventually be manufactured in the u.s to build these things all of the labor to build them the new port infrastructure, the work to bring the the projects ashore and to monitor them. I mean, it's just the ripple effects are huge. And there's so many parts that go into these things, which are the size of the Washington Monument, and they're just enormous machines. And then in the Gulf of Maine, in particular, the best way to take advantage of the resource, which is the best winds are in deeper water up here. And so they're looking at potentially doing floating platform turbines. So instead of a fixed kind of base where the turbine is just like stuck into the bottom of the ocean. It would be a floating platform that's basically anchored to the seafloor and the turbine sits on top of that. This is very new technology that they're working on a lot, in particular at the University of Maine. But that, I mean, it's just like a complete next game changer in an already game changing industry.
1: But this can't all be upside, right? I mean, we're still building things in the ocean, right? That's true. Here's Annie.
2: The flip side of this huge economic impact is potential impact on fisheries. And this is a really complicated topic, which we also get into quite a bit in the pod. You know, the fact is that the science is not that settled on exactly how turbines impact fish and and separately how they impact fisher people, you know, boats and vessels and, and the traps and lines and gear that are used to catch um, things like lobsters in the Gulf of Maine or squid for calamari in southern New England. That's been a big sticking point for vineyard wind. But the fishermen are terrified of this industry. They're not feeling heard. And and a lot of that has to do with sort of the early failures of the process, you know, to be consensus building. And, And, you know, they feel basically steamrolled. And they have seen other industries get steamrolled by these massive economic changes before. I mean, this is a pretty classic American story. They feel, I think, a lot like many coal miners might um, about whether they will be left behind in the transition or whether they'll be accounted for and what that would look like. Um, and many fishermen just don't want to be near these turbines at all, even if it's hypothetically possible for them to fish around them. And so that continues to be like a huge debate as these things are cited, especially in Maine, New Hampshire's fisheries are quite a bit smaller, but they're very tied into the same fisheries as Maine is. You know, Maine has the bigger chunk of it, so it's the same kind of fleet. And yeah, I mean, every every meeting about these things, there's always a contingent of fishermen who are really trying to put their feet down. And it's a big economic impact. So, you know, that they have a a large amount of power there as well.
0: More after a quick break.
1: Now, before the break, we were discussing the environmental impact on these turbines. Here's Annie again discussing what we can learn from Europe.
2: The reason we don't have an answer to it is because most projects in Europe are just closed to fishing to kind of forestall this potential problem, and they are in some places like Denmark required by law to essentially buy out the fishery and and compensate them for the lost grounds. Um, So there haven't been a ton of studies done, just you know about what goes on in a wind farm and as far as the ecosystem. I mean, generally. Some of the research that my co-host Sam Evans-Brown looked at included that fish actually like sea life, you know, likes to hang out around a thing in the ocean that they call the reef effect. So in some ways, this could be good because it's just creating new habitats for them. But in other ways, there are questions about the radiation from the transmission lines um, and just the process of physically installing these things in the ocean can stir up sediment. It can disturb habitat. Fish migrations though are changing for other reasons kind of as this is going on and one of the chief ones of those is climate change so it's this interesting circular problem you know as water's warm as a result of not using zero carbon sources of energy fisheries are moving around and and being affected you know potentially even more than a single wind farm would do and that's a slower moving problem but it, it they it's a tricky thing to like figure out because it's changing as we try to study it.
0: So not too much to learn, but there's definitely is a downside. I asked Annie, what did she walk away from this research learning and how did she look at the positive and negative effects of this potential solution?
2: I think the biggest takeaway is the scale of the challenge of climate change is so great that a lot of the solutions are also going to have are necessarily going to have great impacts both positive and negative as you said and when we have seen huge rapid economic shifts like the one we are entering in the past they have had a ton of collateral damage typically for marginalized communities you know low-income folks people of color um they've divided communities and and they've reshaped communities and and that is what is likely coming to a lot of coastal economies on the east coast first and and a lot of them are post-industrial you know sort of the northeast version of the rust belt these like post-textile or post-fishery towns that are already in some amount of decline places like bridgeport connecticut where it's just going to be a huge challenge to do it right and if if we do it right and do it thoughtfully and account for sort of those collateral damages, you know, it could have a, a rising tide lifting all boats effect. The question is, will we be able to to do it carefully enough, as quickly as we need to use this as a really important tool to solve climate change? And that question is still unanswered and we're barreling into, you know, finding out the answer. and a lot of people are going to make a lot of money off of this. That's sort of the other thing. Like this is a capitalist situation, which is, kind of a new thing in the renewable energy world. And so I think this will be an interesting first test of like, what happens when big business, big capital, and in some cases, big oil companies who are branching out into renewable energy, kind of enter the the green race. And do they repeat the sins of the past? Or is this something new? And I, I don't know that this country has a great track record in like, succeeding in those sorts of situations. So, so that's, That's the question.
1: So are there countries handling this essential transition well?
2: In some ways, places like Denmark are doing it differently, at least. I mean, so, for example, they have more public ownership of power out there. So the wind turbines are essentially government resources, which is just not something we do in the States. I mean, there's plenty of countries where the government owns the major utility or the source of power natural resource energy. And so that helps equalize the cost. It helps put some accountability on, on the developers and you know, kind of give the public a better stake in the project. We tried to kind of delve into that and found that we just couldn't really imagine what that would even look like in the US because it's such a foreign concept to us. I mean, but it's certainly something that people who are concerned about the idea of a just transition, as it's called, it's certainly something that they're thinking about as a good idea, potentially, or a model that the U.S. could adopt. And then, you know, on the fisheries question, like, I don't know that we landed on the buying out of the fisheries and the closing of the wind areas as necessarily better or worse than what the U.S. has tried to do, which is kind of tried to do it both ways and say, like, well, you can still fish there. You might not be able to. We'll give you a little money and good luck. I mean, when I put it like that, it does sound a little bit better, but I'm sure that the fisheries in Europe are, are just as sort of aggrieved by the speed of this transition. So I th- I think the short answer is, I mean, any, any huge scale up of like really valuable technology like this is, you know, has huge economic benefits and huge economic costs. And it's not mature enough in Europe that I think that we can reliably base what's going to happen in the States on what they did there for, for all the reasons, you know, the political reasons, the economic reasons, and also the fact that the technology has changed so much and is so much bigger now physically and, and in its um, power generating capacity that it's almost like a different paradigm. So it will be interesting to be able to compare though. And they're also scaling this up really rapidly in places like South Korea and China, you know, which have a completely different energy picture. So yeah, we're definitely entering a new kind of, world order for wind that will have a lot of different models potentially for us to pick from
0: if you'd like to learn more please check out the windfall podcast it's a fascinating story and paints a clear picture of the potential hurdles ahead of us
1: all right we will be back right next week with more bonus episodes of rocketchip.fm before we start our new season more details on that coming up very very soon so with all of that I'm Mike Belsito for Michael Saka, and this is Rocketship.fm.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network, and if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to the Podglomerate. Com to see the full show listings.
1: Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to
3: productcollective.com.